I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, but rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. With some background thrown in on actors, maybe some facts on a director, and if I've done my job right, a half amusing story or two. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. September is upon us, and the promise of an autumnal pleasantness is hopefully going to visit us soon, which is perfect for our theme, Walk the Dinosaur, our covering of a batch of weird films that feature some of our favorite prehistoric beasts. This week, we feature that bizarre Rankin and Bass adventure film, 1977's The Last Dinosaur. Join us! a memory of something that you've held on to for years, only to find that you actually misremembered it? If you haven't had it happen yet, don't worry, you will. Time makes fools of us all, and memory being a construct has a way of melding in with other things that have occurred during that kind of time period, making a weird, half-remembered dream. But still, in this case, I had fondly remembered seeing this week's feature, and since I initially saw it at the tender age of five, when I was up visiting my maternal grandparents in Wisconsin, this really threw me. I sat on brown shag carpet, looked up, took it in, or at least what I had managed to recall taking in, and I saw this. This movie somehow was about people who travel by drill to a lost land where dinosaurs, cavemen, and other creatures live. And for some reason, Captain Kangaroo, in my mind, Bob Keeshan, was there trying to hunt dinosaurs and ended up getting stuck in this area of this part of the planet. I remember special effects being amazing, and I wanted to know why I'd never seen this film before. Again, see, five years old and naive. Like I said, this is what five-year-old Chris took in. Ironically, it would be when I was 10 and Jurassic Park fever was sweeping the land in the summer of 1993, I found myself up in Wisconsin again, again with my grandparents, and this time TBS was running an all-day dinosaur movie marathon. And I would get to see this very film again, and geez, how wrong was I? so incredibly wrong. Well, at least not about the drill, and not about the distant land of dinosaurs. But I was looking at a grizzled Richard Boone, Paladin himself from Have Gun Will Travel, not Captain Kangaroo, which, sidebar, by all accounts, Bob Keeson 
was described as being a total monster to children when he wasn't on the set doing his children's show. So perhaps it wouldn't be so beyond the pale for him to play a ruthless big game hunter. And in taking this in, the special effects are charmingly laughable. Like, you can see creases in rubber, you can see zippers on suits of all these dinosaurs that are running in front of the camera. Again, all that being even said, even at 10 years old, I liked it. And I thought it was kind of badass still. Yet, in watching it, it was a little confusing, because it feels like a really strange hybrid. It has some small budget effects, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to act like a television film would which gives it this really strange feeling when you're sitting down trying to view it. How do we account for all of this? Well, to do that, one would have to go and seek out those masters of stop-motion holiday musicals, Arthur Rankin Jr. and his partner, Jules Bass. Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass were the producers of some of the most cherished holiday stop-motion specials of all time, which included Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Year Without a Santa Claus, and Jack Frost, as well as some of the more iconic cartoon specials of the 1970s and 1980s, which included the animated adaptations of The Hobbit, The Return of the King, Flight of Dragons, and The Wind in the Willows. On the television front, they were the designers of Thundercats and its less successful cousin, Silverhawks. Rankin and Bass had deep ties to Japan, as the puppets that were designed for use in their stop-motion features were created by Japanese artists and animated there to save on production cost. Ever the entrepreneurs, they ended up striking a deal with the Japanese company Toho to produce the first full live-action sequel to King Kong vs. Godzilla in 1967, titled King Kong Escapes. It's a fantastic film, and we will end up covering it on this show one day. And that only seemed natural, since they were the producers of the King Kong Saturday Morning cartoon series of the time. The film itself was not well received in the States, but it did alright in the international market. Undeterred, the duel continued to do solid work and rack up successes with their made-for-TV films, holiday specials, and cartoons, but they continued to want to break into production on big-budget film releases. A couple of years down the line, and they ended up partnering up with Subaraya Productions, whose big claim to fame at the time was the Ultra Series. And I say the Ultra Series as in Ultraman.
Getting a script put together by William Overgaard, a cartoon writer who was in the company stable, Rankin and Bass ended up fronting money to hire the talent. They secured Richard Boone, Joan Van Ark, Stephen Keats, and Luther Rackley, and they left it up to Subaraya Productions to take care of all of the special effects on the production itself. East met West, the film was shot, but in the end, it was the Americans who were sold on the fact that they were making this big budget feature, and instead they found themselves in a struggling B-film made on the cheap by a second-rate producer of Kaiju. Don't get me wrong, I'm still on board. But it would also explain why all of the cave people in the picture were Japanese. And in stark contrast to all the white invaders. In the end, Toho ended up stepping in with distribution to complete the film, which could also be why the Tyrannosaurus Rex's roar was just a weird clipped version of Godzilla's iconic cry. After the film was complete, there wasn't a U.S. distributor who would pick it up to sponsor it for a theatrical run as intended. So Rankin and Bass did what they always had done. They sold it to ABC to be a movie of the week. On February 11, 1977, The Last Dinosaur made its television debut with the television edit of its original film. Internationally, it was ended up being picked up by Cinema International Corporation, and it got a theatrical run. Not to much acclaim. Oddly enough, the thing most remembered about this picture is the fact that Jules Bass wrote the theme song and Nancy Wilson sang it. And it's head and shoulders over what this film actually deserves.
to me, this is just a fun, bad picture that was made with a lot of squandered talent and very few resources, but it can still be enjoyed for what it is. On a happy note, you've now heard me jaw jack enough about this subject, how about we just get to the trailer? We've been using a manned laser drill. It's a model of one here. Polar bar. Polar bar 5, on a routine mission, disappeared off the monitor. There were five men on that expedition. There was one survivor. The uh, heat outside was terrific, but in the distance we could see ice cliffs. Then I noticed something moving above the trees in the haze. An enormous animal. I shouted and I waved, but they didn't see it until it was too late. And then they were gone. They were eaten. By what, Mr. Thrust? As far as we know, it was Tyrannosaurus rex, the largest carnivore that ever lived. The king of the dinosaurs. appointed living room where an older gentleman and a young lady are luxuriating next to a zebra skin rug in front of a roaring fireplace watching movies of animals being projected on the wall he is Mastin Thrust Richard Boone who is sporting a porn star's name and a mustache that should be criminal CEO of Thrust Incorporated a big game hunter in his leisure time, and judging by the way he dresses, apparently he is on safari 24-7. Thrust ends up bidding farewell to his lady companion as he explains he has to get ready for when they land in Japan and takes his leave. And that's when you realize all this is taking place in some sort of ultra-posh 747, of course owned by Thrust, which makes one wonder, where is the smoke actually going from that fireplace? Would the entire plane be filled at that point? Our lady companion gets up and decides to look through the family scrapbook of Mastins, while the credits roll and the theme song blares. 
all of this is super unnecessary, but it's really trying hard to give us a bunch of exposition on how wealthy he is, how much he likes to hunt. But it's rather hilarious because this woman is going through all of this crazy pantomime as to how funny or cute the photos are. And there's a lot of black and white images of angry looking men cleaning guns and it'll just have an arrow pointing to it that says, Dad! Full out, not pulling any punches, one thinks that this was her one big break, and she went for it. Either way, the plane lands, and Mastin, being the gentleman that he is, he explains to her that it's really been nice knowing her, and he values his time with her, and as a token of his appreciation, he gives her a 24-carat bullet. Or, at least gold that's been molded to look like a NATO 7.62 round. Understandably, she's pissed. Sorry, sugar. End of the line. I've got some other business to take care of. Thank you, pardon? Uh, here's a ticket back to wherever that was that I found you. Portland. Portland? Mm. A uh, token of my appreciation. Oh. What's this? That's a solid gold bullet. What am I supposed to do with this? I can't, I can't wear this. Well, if times get really tough, you can bite on it. Excuse me. Hey, I get it. She's now a stranger in a strange country where she doesn't speak the language. She needs to get back to the United States, which is at least going to be, what, a 17-hour or so flight? Because, you know, all those gold bullet exchanges that dot the street corners of major metropolitan areas are available to her as well. I think this is just here to reasonably cement our opinion that Mastin is just a shit heel. But we need to move on and get to the meat of our story. You see, Thrust Incorporated had sent an experimental manned laser drill, known as a polar borer, to drill for oil underneath the ice caps. I'm assuming the North Pole? When the borer ended up breaking through the side of an active volcano where it discovered an uncharted valley nestled in the iced walls. Of course, that's been heated to tropical levels by the mountain. While geologist Chuck Wade, that would be our man Stephen Keats, went out to take samples, a Tyrannosaurus rex just happened to stop by and ate the entire rest of the crew, leaving only Mr. Wade to return and tell the tale. Mastin holds a press conference and announces that they will be sending another team to the valley. Wade will be returning, of course, but they'll also bring in their top scientist, Dr. Kawamoto, with them. Mastin also announces that he, too, is going to study the creature and assures the press corps that he has no intention of hunting it before pointing out that he is also bringing his faithful hunting partner, Bunta, as played by Luther Rackley. He's a Maasai tracker, because... You know, that doesn't look suspicious at all. He also has a spot on the trip for a member of the press corps uh, to document their expedition itself. And the press pool offers up what they have as their best reporter, a one Frankie Banks, as played by Joan Van Ark. But Thrust immediately turns her down, saying this expedition is no place for a woman. Banks takes this all in in stride, but then tells her editor, Don't worry, these are modern times. Women can do anything men can do. I just need to talk to him. And she does, by way of crashing a party that Mastin is attending, getting drunk with him, performing a striptease, and doing some really bad impressions for him. Why don't you come up and see my pictures, big boy? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, that is W.C. Fields, right? Right! Uh, 
How do you mistake Mae West for W.C. Fields? Huh? Seriously? Anyhow, she ends up changing Mastin's mind the old-fashioned way by sleeping with him. I love 1970s second-wave feminism, don't you? Crew now ready, they end up departing for the secluded valley, and almost immediately upon arriving, Frankie nearly gets herself run over by a charging eutherium. Think of it as like a souped-up rhinoceros that came from the Eocene period. That's about, like, 56 million years ago. And it's all Mastin can do to keep her from getting herself killed. This is going to be a reoccurring theme with Frankie. She announces she's not an idiot and then proceeds to do something that is so incredibly stupid it puts her and everyone else in danger. Anyway, they set up camp. Everybody ends up leaving except for the good Dr. Kawamoto. And it's while they're out there on their outings that they encounter the T-Rex for the first time. Mastin's gun ends up jamming immediately, and Bunta is forced to wound the T-Rex with a spear before it ends up retreating. Mastin then wisely throws his gun away, because you can't clean or unjam a gun, apparently. While they're deciding to slowly trek back to camp, the T-Rex takes that opportunity to go back to the site and kill Dr. Kawamoto, crushing him and all of the gear underfoot. The T-Rex then treats the polar borer sort of like a dog finding a bone, and he picks it up and he carries it back with him deeper into the valley. It's during his perambulations that the T-Rex ends up disturbing a triceratops that apparently has just been napping in the dirt in the side of the valley. It ends up bursting out, and you have this extended dinosaur fight that concludes with one dead trike. I call this filler. The crew return back to what's left of camp, and after not seeing the borer, they assume it's now sunk into the lake, still because of the T-Rex, and they're now resigned to their fate of being there forever. Why? Oh, it's because Grandpappy Mastin had this great contingency plan. No, they won't. I told them that if we weren't back in five days, if they didn't hear from us... Under no conditions were they to risk one more man, one more life. So now, Thrust gets to live in the jungle and hunt dinosaurs full time. Fun. We then learn that months have gone by, and yet all these people are still relatively clean as far as their clothing goes, and oddly enough, nobody seems to need to shave. Local cavemen have been coming around and hassling the survivors, but... They've been managing to scare them off with the use of a homemade crossbow. Eventually, a curious cavewoman approaches them, and Frankie decides that there's just too much testosterone in that camp. So she befriends the primitive lady and names her Hazel. They do all kinds of fun girl stuff. They carry around purses, they wash their hair, which of course leads to yet another T-Rex encounter, where Hazel and our Frankie have to run to a cave for shelter. It's there that the T-Rex can't get to them, but this sets up the opportunity to pull some Three Stooges-level hijinks on the dinosaur. You see, the boys manage to tie a vine rope around the T-Rex's tail and then attach it to a boulder to be rolled down the hill. All is done in full rubber glory. I, I personally feel Yakety Sack should have been playing as the dino was dragged away from the sheer weight of the rock rolling. 
And it's from this event that Mastin gets the bright idea that they can kill the beast with a homemade catapult. While out hunting, Wade encounters the still-intact borer, just relocated to a different part of the valley, and he's overjoyed that they now can all go home. But Mastin will not hear of it until he himself has killed the beast. Wade tells him flat out, they have one shot at this. There's only enough battery life to get it started up once, and only once. So either Mastin comes with them, or they have to leave the billionaire behind. Frankie begs Mastin to come with them, but it's Mastin's turn to tell her that she should really stay here. Mastin? We have the polar bore launched. I want you to come back with us. got a better idea. You stay here with me. <laughs> I like that idea. Adam and Eve. <laughs> now you tell me the truth. What's back there for you? Confusion. Frustration. Seriously? Crazy. Boonta ends up getting eaten while trying to track the T-Rex, and he accidentally stumbles into the catapult trap. Masson ends up firing upon the beast and hits it, but only finds out that it's injured. The T-Rex, in a rage, destroys the catapult, and Masson watches angrily from a distance as his foe retreats back into the jungle. Frankie ends up trying one last time to tell him to forget the beast. And you've done all anyone could, and you were just magnificent. But please, let the dinosaur go. Let it be. It's the last one. So Mastin stands in the mud and watches Wade and Frankie drive off in the borer. He looks around, looks over at Hazel, who 
has stayed with him simply to announce to her, All right, let's go. The theme song blares yet again, and we are left with a good idea of who the real dinosaur is. Get it? It's the old man. Seriously? 106 minutes to make that point? You got the point, right? Wow. So let's unpack this. First and foremost, the glaring elephant slash dinosaur in the room is how cheap this movie comes off looking. I'm sure by partnering with Subaraya, it was thought that it would be the smart move on Rankin and Bass's part. They, you know, created a giant robot monster TV show. It's fun. It was hip for the day. The kids loved it. How could it go south? Well, what happened was they had skimped hard on quality. The T-Rex appeared just to be the same old Gorosaurus costume that they had used for King Kong Escapes, simply painted gray. The Unitherium and the Triceratops costumes were designed to function as those two men in a horse costumes of yore, leading to some incredibly weird footage of creature gates as they travel across the screen. The polar borer itself looks like a silver soda can that has a cone glued onto the end of it with, you know, small rivets drawn around it to look like a drill. One wonders where most of this money was spent, because apparently it wasn't on the screen itself. Then, you have the acting. Oof. I gotta say, Joan Van Ark is the worst part of this film. Don't get me wrong, both Keats and Boone try to do what's best with this awful script that they're left with, but Van Ark is just consistently lousy throughout. And in spite of all this, the film still retains a certain goofy charm. It doesn't work as a film, but that's why I think it still entertains me as an adult. If one were to crack a beverage, sit down, and let yourself go, because honestly, if you gave any of this film itself serious consideration, you would start yelling at the screen. It's too violent and serious to be aimed at or enjoyed thoroughly by children, but the action itself is too slapstick and campy to be enjoyed by adults. Since it's ended up being a made-for-TV film, it never got a first-run critique, but the film now has tons of online reviews, and most take it for what it is. It's a fun, good, bad movie. Still, this did end up getting a theatrical release in Europe where it appeared on a double bill with William Friedkin's masterpiece, his remake of Wages of Fear, the film Sorcerer with Roy Scheider. Definitely is going to be a future episode on this. It's, it's fantastic, a tense drama, wonderful movie, which makes me unable to imagine transitioning from that film to this one or vice versa. They have nothing in common as far as tone, genre, or quality. To me, this is like offering someone a full course gourmet meal of appetizers. Exotic, delicious eats. You got ramaki, you got coconut shrimp, chicken skewers, a caprese salad, fine champagne. Oh, and for your main course, a McRib. That being said, 
more of these kind of things need to be seen, in my opinion, by people in general. It's a bizarre time capsule of pop culture that needs to be experienced and appreciated. And what you have now, it's entertainment as it used to be. A final note on this. This is the sort of film that feels like it would be rife for an actual remake, on the grounds that you remake films that have a germ of a good idea, but they didn't pull it off in the execution. Rather than say remake something that was very successful, therefore all you're doing is just reminding the audience of how better the original is compared to your subpar reworking. And to me, this is that kind of film. You got a good idea. You have a drill, you borrow into a, you know, uncharted valley, you find dinosaur life there, you can work with that. You can remake this and make it better. And I'm not talking CGI, which is what they would use today, but I just mean you can really flesh out and make a good story with this. And at the end of the day, it would be a lot of fun. version of The Last Dinosaur, screened here at the LSCE, was a custom DVD burned to order by way of the Warner Archive Collection. No frills, no toots or whistles, but a clean copy of the movie print that they have on file. Such a disc can be printed and sent to you by way of Amazon for the steep, steep price of $13.54, and well worth it for fans of Rankin and Bass kaiju films or dinosaur bee films in general. Remember folks, I don't get paid to recommend that you purchase things, but I do feel that physical media is an important thing to keep supporting, and by your continued patronage, studios will continue to release content to us, the viewing public. Besides, you know you want to have some rubber dino fight scenes, so get out there and get them. Besides, it's a lot of fun. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at The Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us at the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review from you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, or send us wonderful things, email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com, or send us an audio message by way of Anchor, a free and easy app to use. So until next time, please take care, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past, Take it easy out there, everybody.